This is a continuation of The Relevance of the Communist Manifesto by Slavoj Žižek. Unfreedom in the Guise of Freedom The Communist Manifesto is at its most actual when it enumerates different forms of false socialism. If what goes on in China today can be characterized as capitalist socialism, what then can we do with fundamentalist movements like Boko Haram? From the perspective of a traditional communal life, women's education is a key moment that encapsulates the devastating effect of Western modernization. It liberates women from family ties and trains them to become a part of the third world's cheap labor force. The struggle against women's education is thus a new form of what Marx and Engels in the Communist Manifesto called reactionary or feudal socialism. It signifies the rejection of the capitalist modernity in favor of traditional forms of communal life. Another pertinent aspect of the Communist Manifesto is the series of answers it gives to the bourgeois reproach to communists. You want to abolish property. You want to abolish marriage which followed a precise Hegelian logic of dialectical reversal. The Communist Manifesto should be read here in parallel with the work of two other German artists from the same period, Heinrich Heine, from whom Marx and Engels borrowed many stylistic turns, and Richard Wagner, who was going through his early revolutionary period at the time, 1848. The same insight was already formulated by Heinrich Heine in 1834, in his History of Religion and Philosophy in Germany, although presented there as a positive admirable fact. Quote, Mark you this, ye proud men of action. You are nothing but the unconscious henchmen of intellectuals who, often in the humblest seclusion, have meticulously plotted your every deed." Unquote. As cultural conservatives would have put it today, deconstructionist philosophers are much more dangerous than actual terrorists. While the latter want to undermine our politico-ethical order, so as to impose their own religious-ethical order, deconstructionists want to undermine order itself, order qua order. We say that the most dangerous criminal now is the entirely lawless modern philosopher. Compared to him, burglars and bigamists are essentially moral men. My heart goes out to them. They accept the essential ideal of man. They merely seek it wrongly. Thieves respect property. They merely wish the property to become their property, that they may more perfectly respect it. But philosophers dislike property as property. They wish to destroy the very idea of personal possession. Bigamists respect marriage, or they would not go through the highly ceremonial and even ritualistic formality of bigamy. But philosophers despise marriage as marriage. Murderers respect human life. They merely wish to attain a greater fullness of human life in themselves, by the sacrifice of what seems to them to be lesser lives. But philosophers hate life itself, their own as much as other people's. The common criminal is a bad man, but at least he is, as it were, a conditional good man. He says that if only a certain obstacle be removed, say a wealthy uncle, he is then prepared to accept the universe and to praise God. He is a reformer, but not an anarchist. He wishes to cleanse the edifice, but not to destroy it. But the evil philosopher is not trying to alter things, but to annihilate them. This provocative analysis demonstrates the limitation of Chesterton, his not being Hegelian enough. What he doesn't get is that universalized crime is no longer a crime. It sublates, negates, or overcomes itself as crime and turns from transgression into a new order. He's right to claim that, by comparison, the entirely lawless philosopher, burglars, bigamists, 
murderers even, are essentially moral. A thief is a conditionally good person. He or she doesn't deny property qua property, just wants more of it for him or herself, and is then quite ready to respect it. However, the conclusion to be drawn from this is that crime is, qua crime, essentially immoral. That it wants just a particular, illegal reordering of a global moral order, while order itself should remain. And, in a truly Hegelian spirit, one should bring this proposition of the essential morality of the crime to its imminent reversal. Not only is crime essentially moral, in Hegelese, an inherent moment in the deployment of the inner antagonisms and contradictions of the very notion of moral order, rather than something that disturbs moral order from outside, as an accidental intrusion. But morality itself is essentially criminal. Again, not only in the sense that the universal moral order necessarily negates itself in particular crimes, but more radically in the sense that the way morality, in the case of theft, property, asserts itself is already in itself a crime. Property is theft, as they used to say in the 19th century. That is to say, one should pass from theft as a particular criminal violation of the universal form of property to this form itself as a criminal violation. What Chesterton fails to perceive is that the universalized crime that he projects onto lawless modern philosophy and its political equivalent, the anarchist movement that aims at destroying the totality of civilized life, already exists in the guise of the current rule of law, so that the antagonism between law and crime reveals itself to be inherent in crime, the antagonism between universal and particular crime. This point was clearly made by none other than Richard Wagner who, in his draft of the play Jesus of Nazareth, written somewhere between late 1848 and early 1849, attributes to Jesus a series of alternative supplementations of the commandments. The commandment saith, Thou shalt not commit adultery, but I say unto you, ye shall not marry without love. A marriage without love is broken as soon as entered into, and whoso hath wooed without love already hath broken the wedding. If ye follow my commandment, how can ye ever break it, since it bids you to do what your own heart and soul desire? But where ye marry without love, ye bind yourselves at variance with God's love, and in your wedding ye sin against God. And this sin avengeth itself by your striving next against the law of man, in that ye break the marriage vow. The shift from Jesus's actual words is crucial here. Jesus internalizes the prohibition, rendering it much more severe. The law says no actual adultery, while I say that if you only covet the other's wife in your mind, it is the same as if you already committed adultery, etc. Wagner also internalizes it, but in a different way. The inner dimension he evokes is not that of intention to do it, but that of love that should accompany the law, marriage. True adultery is not to copulate outside marriage, but to copulate in marriage without love. Simple adultery just violates the law from outside, while a marriage without love destroys it from within, turning the letter of the law against its spirit. So to paraphrase Brecht yet again, what is a simple adultery compared to the adultery that is a loveless marriage? It is not by chance that Wagner's underlying formula marriage is adultery recalls Proudhon's property is theft. In the stormy events of 1848, Wagner was not only a Feuerbachian celebrating sexual love, but was also a Proudhonian revolutionary demanding the abolition of private property. So no wonder that later on the same stage, Wagner attributes to Jesus a Proudhonian supplement to thou shalt not steal. This also is a good law 
Thou shalt not steal, nor covet another man's goods. Who goeth against it sinneth. But I preserve you from that sin, inasmuch as I teach you, Love thy neighbor as thyself, which also meaneth, Lay not up for thyself treasures, whereby thou stealest from thy neighbor, and makest him to starve. For when thou hast thy goods safeguarded by the law of man, thou provokest thy neighbor to sin against the law. This is how the Christian's supplement to the book should be conceived of, as a properly Hegelian negation of negation, which resides in the decisive shift from the distortion of a notion to the distortion that is constitutive of this notion, that is, to this notion as a distortion in itself. Recall again Proudhon's old dialectical motto, property is theft. The negation of negation is here the shift from theft as a distortion, negation, violation, of property, to the dimension of theft as inscribed into the very notion of property. Nobody has the right to own means of production fully, since their nature is inherently collective. Hence every claim of the form, this is mine, is illegitimate. As we have just seen, the same goes for crime and law. For the transition from crime as a distortion, negation, of the law, to crime as a sustainer of the law, in other words, to the idea of law itself as universalized crime. One should note that, in this conception of Hegel's negation of negation, the unity encompassing the two opposite terms is the lowest, the transgressive one. It is not crime that represents a moment in law's self-mediation, and it is not theft that represents a moment in property's self-mediation. The opposition between crime and law is inherent in crime, hence law is a subspecies of crime, crime's self-relating negation, in the same way in which property is theft's self-relating negation, and does not the same hold ultimately of nature itself? Here, negation of negation is the shift from the idea that we are violating some naturally balanced order to the idea that imposing on the real such a notion of balanced order is in itself the greatest violation, which is why the premise, or even the first axiom, of every radical ecology is that there is no nature. Chesterton wrote, take away the supernatural and what you are left with is the unnatural. We should endorse this statement, but in the opposite sense from the one intended by Chesterton. We should accept that nature is unnatural, a freaky show of contingent disturbances with no inner rhyme. The same dialectical reversal characterizes the notion of violence. It is not only that violence, in the form of violent outbursts, is often an impotent passager à l'acte, a sign of impotence. One could claim that this reversal into impotence is not just the sign of a deficient violence, but a feature inherent in violence itself. Violence qua violence, the need to attack the opponent violently, is a sign of impotence, of the agent's exclusion from what it attacks. I only treat with violence things that escape my control, things that I cannot regulate and steer from within. The two quotations from Wagner's play cannot but evoke the famous passages from the Communist Manifesto that answer the bourgeois reproach that communists want to abolish freedom, property, and family. Capitalist freedom is, in effect, the kind of freedom that one can buy and sell on the market. Hence it is this freedom that represents the very form of unfreedom for those who have nothing but their labor force to sell. It is capitalist property itself that means abolition of property for those who own no means of production. It is the bourgeois marriage itself that is a kind of universalized prostitution. In all these cases, the external opposition is internalized, so that one opposite becomes the form of appearance of the other. Bourgeois freedom is the form of appearance of the unfreedom of the majority, and so on. But does not exactly the same hold for today's precarious self-entrepreneurs? 
their unfreedom, a precarious existence with no social welfare, appears to them in the guise of its opposite, as freedom to renegotiate the terms of one's existence many times over. It is already a commonplace that the exploding rise of precarious work deeply affects the conditions of collective solidarity. Precarious work deprives workers of a whole series of rights that, until recently, were taken to be self-evident in any country that perceived itself as a welfare state. Workers themselves have to take care of their health insurance and retirement options, there's no paid leave, and the future is uncertain. Besides, precarious work generates antagonism within the working class, between permanently employed and precarious workers. Trade unions often tend to privilege permanent workers, and it is very difficult for precarious workers even to organize themselves into a union or to establish another form of collective self-organization. One might have expected that this strengthened exploitation would also strengthen workers' resistance, but in fact, it renders resistance even more difficult. The main reason for this is ideological. Precarious work is presented, and up to a point even effectively experienced, as a new form of freedom. I am no longer just a cog in a complex enterprise, but an entrepreneur of the self. I am my own boss. Someone who freely manages his or her employment is free to choose from new options, to explore different aspects of his or her creative potential, to decide his or her priorities. That was brutal. We will be back soon to read the final section or chapter called The Communist Horizon. Goddamn, I hit that C really hard. <laughs> Reminder that joining our Patreon, even at the $1 level, will grant you early access to the Marxist Menagerie here on the Epoch of Incredulity, and that's patreon.com slash epicincredulity. For now, comrades, enjoy your epoch. <laughs>